Hey, welcome to your Parenting Partner Podcast. Who's ready to listen and learn? Who's ready to laugh and learn? Who's ready? Let's do this. All right? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Um, I hope you were all well and surviving our, you know, life as it is. And I am so excited today to have on Andrea Love, PhD. She is a doctor. She is amazing. I am so excited. And we are going to talk about all things COVID and vaccines. And we're going to try to educate you. And we're going to try to debunk some stuff. And, you know, we'll see where this goes. So hi, Andrea. Hi, Brandy. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to get on here and chat all things COVID. I think we're all a little burnt out, but there's certainly still misinformation circulating. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. So wait, before we start, tell tell everyone a little about you and right. what you do and who you are. <laughs> all right. Um, so I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and my research, actual research expertise is infectious disease immunology. And so basically what that means is I study how our bodies, how our immune systems respond to infections with microorganisms that cause disease. So bacteria and viruses and parasites and things like that. Um, I am not a clinician. I am a research doctor. Um, and I currently work for a biotech company doing the same sort of research. I've actually been involved in some of the COVID-19 vaccine projects with some of the various companies around the world. Um, in my very, very free time, because I have so much of that, um, I also am the co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast, where I co-host with an old college classmate, Dr. Jessica Steyer, who is a public health scientist. And we discuss all things science and health related. So every podcast episode is a different topic about um, some sort of science topic. Of course, there are COVID topics. We've done things about um, Lyme disease, which I did my doctoral research on. We've done things about detoxes, homeopathy, essential oils, um, all sorts of cool stuff. We, of course, have an Instagram and a Facebook page. So you can find us at Unbiased SciPod. Sweet. Everybody should listen to this. <laughs> it's, that is, it's, this is important stuff. It is. It's important stuff. Um, so the deal is what I did was I kind of just combed Facebook. I asked questions to my community, my friends, my, you know, my family <laughs> and everyone I knew. And we came up with all of these questions. So I'm going to try to keep it in some sort of order, but anyone who knows me knows my brain is a little bouncy sometimes. Um, but we're going to try to answer a lot of questions. We're going to try to debunk some myths and we're just going to try to get to the bottom of all of this stuff, because there, there really is a lot of information. And I think there's a lot of information that comes at us. And, you know, every day I wake up and I watch the Today Show, and there's always something new going on. And so we're just going to talk about it. So we're going to go through the questions. And then at the end, also, Andrea, I'm going to be like, what did we miss? And what do we need to know? Um, but I think 
the first thing I want to start with, just because it's annoying me, is that we're going to talk about, you know, Omicron is here. Yeah. Um, and people are like, well, it's not that bad. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the flu. And basically COVID in general also is like the flu. By the way, real quick, I am vaxxed, boosted. I am a team player. I'm just asking the questions sure. that I hear on you know, Facebook and around the world. Um, So people are saying it's not that bad. COVID basically is like the flu. The flu kills more people. Mm -hmm. And what would you say to someone who said that to you? So (laughs) I mean, (laughs) aside from the fact that they are both viruses that are transmitted by respiratory droplets, they're not that similar at all. Um, We do have some symptom overlap, right? They cause some similarities and symptoms like fever and fatigue and coughing and respiratory issues, but they're two very different viruses. They're in completely different families of, of viruses. So viruses are characterized by family, like, like, um, other organisms. Um, and even just looking at the crude mortality data, we know that COVID-19 is nothing like the flu. COVID-19 is at least 10 times more fatal than the flu is. Influenza typically kills between 20,000 and 60,000 people a year, and we've already exceeded 800,000 deaths in the U.S. alone from COVID-19. So that by itself should tell you right off the bat that COVID and the flu are not the same. Um, Even now, you know, two years in, we're better at treating patients who are in the hospital. You know, clinicians know more about how to sustain, you know, care and Um, We've got some promising actual therapeutic interventions that can help people that are very severely ill. We are still seeing over 1,500 deaths per day um, in the U.S. alone. So, no, it is not just the flu. It is not a bad cold. Um, Omicron, there's anecdotal um, observations that suggest it might be milder. But when we say milder, we're really seeing that in people that are vaccinated and boosted. We're not necessarily seeing milder illness in unvaccinated people compared to previous variants. And even when we say milder, it's not like a little cold, a little sniffle. This is, you know, milder compared to to dying, you know, And, and still there are, in fact, many, many people still dying from this. The vast majority of those who are unvaccinated. Yeah. And, and I even, you know, I know some people who did get it way in the beginning when they, we didn't have the vaccines and they were healthy and it was, it was not the flu and right. they were okay now, but they did spend some time in the hospital and it, it, this is, it is not the flu. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, get into this kind of false sense of security. I'm healthy. I exercise, you know, healthy lifestyle is super important. You know, it, good sleep, a healthy diet, you know, reducing stress, exercise, those are all important to keeping your immune system functioning and keeping you, you know, generally healthy, but that's not going to prevent you from getting infected with a virus, particularly when the virus is running rampant around the world, you know, yeah, you might have a better clinical outcome, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that. And we've seen people that are otherwise completely fit and healthy dying from this, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's funny because I was going to talk to you about that and ask you about that too, because I do see, you know, friends, 
ish on Facebook <laughs> that, that you've known forever. And they're like, but I lead a very healthy lifestyle. I do yoga. I eat kale. Um, I do all of these things and my body has an immune system. And if we keep getting vaccinated, then my immune system won't do the thing that it's supposed to do. Yeah. And that's the actual exact opposite train of thought. So your immune system is just like any other organ system in your body, right? It, it functions. It's this complex network of cells, of organs, of vessels, and it has a, a job to play, right? The, the immune system actually participates in pretty much every bodily function. And if you want to hear more about me rambling on the immune system, you can listen to, to my podcast. I won't, I won't bore you all with the intimate details, <laughs> but, but it's involved in um, wound healing. So you get a cut, your immune system's involved in that. If you get injured, if you break a bone, your immune system's involved in that. Your immune system is involved in every cellular process, everything that goes on in your body. Um, it helps maintain and regulate everything that's going on. So it's this push pull, this balance. Um, but it's not a perfect system. Nothing is. And it cannot ward off every single illness, every single infection. That's why cancer occurs because the immune system is, you know, not performing adequately. That's why people get infectious diseases. And so what vaccines do, they don't weaken your immune system. They train your immune system. They prepare your immune system in advance for when you do encounter these disease-causing pathogens. And now you're prepared. You've got your you know, suit of armor on, and it's going to prevent you from getting seriously ill and potentially dying. Um, your immune system doesn't get weakened by getting vaccinated. It actually amplifies the immune response so that you're better prepared in the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to me. Um, but also then with that too, I've heard people say things like, well, if we're wearing masks all the time, then we're not getting anything and that's hurting our immune system. Ah, I love this one. Okay. I, know, so, I love it. So, you know, yes, it is true that getting exposed to bacteria and viruses as you age, as your immune system is developing is very important. It does what we call educate, education of the immune system. And what that means is our immune system is always sampling things in our environments and it's, you know, you can kind of envision it like nibbling on little bits and pieces of bacteria that circulate around us to see like which ones are harmful, which ones are not harmful, um, you know, determining whether it's supposed to mount an immune response or not mount an immune response. And so, yes, it's important. Um, your body is composed of a hundred times more bacterial cells than human cells. So in reality, you're, you're more bacteria than human. <laughs> um, and that's part of what we call our microbiome, right? And our microbiome, you have microbiome on your skin, in your mouth, in your di digestive tract, um, in your urogenital tract. Um, and all of these microorganisms, these are actually good for you bacteria. The vast majority of microorganisms in the world are harmless or beneficial to us. There's very, very low percentage that are actually dangerous. And those are the ones that we call pathogens. Um, and so you're surrounded in and on your body. Um, your house is full of microorganisms. Your pets are full of microorganisms. Um, so you're constantly being exposed and educating your immune system. So 
wearing a mask outside to go to school, to go to the store, you know, it's not going to hinder your immune system function. All you got to do is go sit in your bathroom for a little bit and you're going to be surrounded by plenty of microorganisms that are going to keep your immune system, you know, running and ready to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 really it's it's just wild to me. It's just it's so fascinating. Um, So I do have a question because um, I've heard a few different things about kind of like whether the vaccine is actually a vaccine or if it's a shot and if there's a difference. <laughs> I know that sounds like a funny thing to no, say. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. No, I totally, I mean, we've heard it a lot. Um, you know, the the official definition of a vaccine or a vaccination is is just something that's using the components of a pathogen that elicits an immune response. And mm-hmm. typically an immune response in the context of vaccination, we we often think of it as um, the production of antibodies, but it also leads to the production of memory T cells and memory B cells and other sorts of components that are involved in the immune response. And so the, a vaccine is simply a substance that does that. Vaccination is the act of vaccinating. Um, and that can be an injection. It can be an inhaler. There are nasal um, vaccinations. There are oral vaccinations like the oral polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Um, So a shot is just a a physical manifestation of an injectable vaccination. And a lot of people are trying to use that term or use the word jab in a way to kind of diminish, you know, what this vaccine actually is. But But this is actually what a vaccine is. And a vaccine can be any mode of delivery. We, you know, we have oral ones, we have, you know, inhaled ones, we have injectable ones, potentially in the future, we may have topical ones. Um, I mean, that's that's all it is. It basically triggers your body to mount an immune response without actually causing the disease that it's protecting you against, which is what this does. Is there a reason that people are like, it's not actually a vaccine, it's just a shot? Like the flu shot isn't a vaccine. I don't, you know, it's it's very, it's a little bit confounding to me. Um, But I think it originated because a lot of people were trying to insinuate that because this is using a different technology for a vaccination than historical vaccinations, that it somehow was different. But in reality, if you look at the history of vaccination, um, and again, we actually did a podcast episode on the entire history of vaccination from the 17, no, from before the 1700s. <laughs> um, but what we used to do is we used to take, you know, scabs from people with smallpox and rub it in the skin or blow it up the nose of other people. And we were actually, you know, technically infecting people to give them immunity in a more controlled environment. And so we've evolved technology over the years. You know, we went from that to inactivating or killing the virus in question. And then we moved to using small pieces of a virus like a protein. And now we've moved to using the precursor of a protein, which is the mRNA. So all we're doing is we're really polishing the technology and we're actually making it more versatile, easier to produce and lower cost. And in reality, you know, it's really going to advance um, vaccine technology and enable us to develop vaccines for things we haven't been successful at. 
That's awesome. <laughs> I really, I'm, I'm really I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I, I really am too. I mean, you know, the, the mRNA technology, it's been, it's been in development, um, for, for over 30 years and, um, mRNA, you know, I've worked with it. This molecule exists in every organism, right? It's not like, you know, it's not some new thing, right? Our bodies are filled with mRNA. Everything you eat is filled with mRNA. There's mRNA all around and any protein you produce starts from a piece of mRNA. It's a template. Um, but being able to figure out how to handle this in a way, it's very fragile. It's really hard to work with in the lab. It degrades so easily. So being able to figure out a way to stabilize it and construct it so that we can use it to generate these immune responses is just, obviously it's decades of work and it's yeah. phenomenal and it's, and it's incredible. And we're already seeing um, clinical trials for Lyme disease vaccines, for HIV vaccines, for Epstein-Barr virus vaccines. And and none of this would be possible with all of the last 30 years worth of work. I, I think it's amazing. And I do. I will be, I mean, it may be far along in my lifetime because I'm 47. <laughs> but if it comes out, I'll be the first one in line being like, yeah, stick it. Let's yeah, do this. No. I want to be healthy. I want to, I want to, you know, I don't want to get these things. Right. I don't want to get any exactly. of it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, we, we, you know, I look at when I was a kid and, and there wasn't a chicken pox vaccine available. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, back then we didn't really have a full scope of the understanding, like chicken pox is generally not fatal in kids, but once you get infected with that virus, you have that virus for the rest of your life and it can become reactivated and create shingles. And that can happen again and again and again and again. Um, and so I had chicken pox, right. And so I have that virus, it's called the varicella zoster virus in my body for the rest of my life. And I actually got shingles a few years ago and it was awful. Ugh. It was the worst thing ever. And you know, if that vaccine had been available, I would have gotten it. It just wasn't an option, you know? And so why, why do we turn our backs to new vaccines that can protect us against more illnesses? You know, if you want to have a healthier lifestyle, vaccination is a critical part of that. Yeah. It's really interesting. Actually, my parents said this to me and they were like, you know, the problem almost is, I mean, this is not a, a scientific kind of observation, but they were like, it's really interesting because there's just not a lot of people alive now and kicking that were in the time of polio. Mm -hmm. And there's too many, there's too many young people who don't even remember it at all. So obviously I wasn't around in the time of polio, but I'm close enough I'm connected to people who were that mm -hmm. I understand how horrible that was yeah. and what vaccinations did for people and and for so many other diseases like we've just been sort of like slightly coasting for a while I think yeah and I think that there's just a lot of like there's a younger generation that's like well we don't need these things we have other things and it's like no 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 Th this is why we don't have you know so many diseases that are around that were killing people before yeah I mean nail on the head Brandy I mean this is this is unfortunately the the blessing and the curse of a developed nation with medical technology right mm -hmm. and and it's interesting i love the polio comparison because polio yes it was terrible and and we've almost fully eradicated it from the world which is amazing um but actually polio has a lower mortality rate 
then COVID, especially in young children, and was less contagious than COVID. Um, COVID has a higher mortality rate, causes more symptomatic illness, and the until Omicron, the vaccines were essentially similarly effective. Um, and it's and it's very funny to me where you know, we raced to get polio vaccines when they were available. You know, we had this, this national campaign, you had Elvis getting his vaccine on TV, Mm -hmm. right? And it, and, and people rallied behind this. And there was this kind of collective responsibility. And I'm not, you know, I don't have the kind of sociology answer behind why we've lost that. I mean, I have some, some theories. um, Uh But we don't have that now with COVID, you know, and instead it's become this very polarizing topic. And, and if you look at the actual data, COVID-19 is much, much worse on a population level than, than polio was. That's wild. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So sticking kind of with the vaccines and just a few other questions. Um, so people have been worried about the fact that COVID-19 vaccines were manufactured using fetal tissue. Ah, yes. So <laughs> let's let's set the stage a little bit. So when we have to make vaccines, we have to test them on cells in the lab, right? Mm-hmm. And there are a variety of different cell lines that we use in the lab. And we use certain types because they have properties that enable them to replicate or reproduce almost indefinitely. So what that does is it enables us to maintain them in the lab without having to go and take new samples or things like that. And so these are called immortalized cell lines. Now, once upon a time in the 50s and 60s and 70s, so decades and decades ago, um, there were some aborted fetuses, not aborted for research, but they Mm -hmm. happen to be abortions. Um, And tissue samples from those fetuses were collected by scientific researchers. And cells from those tissue samples were isolated and grown and reproduced over years and years and years and years and years, (laughs) and eventually became some of these cell lines um, that we use now. And so... Yes, I guess technically you could say they once upon a time were part of a fetus, but they have no behavior or shape or look or anything that's related to a fetus. And it wasn't as if the fetus was aborted for scientific research. It was someone that had an abortion and and some of those cells were, were harvested and they behaved in a unique property. They reproduced and they're a useful tool. Now, Yes, we know that there are people that maybe have moral objections to this because they're they're against abortion. But if you're using that as a justification, these cell lines are used in every field of scientific research. So what they're used for is they're used to see if the the treatments are toxic, if they elicit poor side effects before you move into animal models and clinical trials. We have to do everything in cells, which we call in vitro studies. So yeah, we, we had to do that with these COVID vaccines. None of those cells are actually in vaccines. This is just used as a testing step in the research process. So if that's your logic, then you also can't use Tums, Advil, Tylenol, any sort of medical equipment, um, pretty much any sort of over-the-counter medical intervention, because all of those things were also tested in the lab on these cell lines as well. 
Um, so, so that's kind of the story behind that, but there is no fetal tissue in any vaccine. There are no fetal cells in any vaccine. There's no clump of fetus. Fetuses aren't being dismembered to use in a vaccine. I've heard all the different permutations of it. Um, yeah. it's just, it's just not founded on, on actual evidence. No, no one's farming them. Correct. Correct. No. And again, these, these cell lines were developed what is it, 60 years ago at this point? Um, they're they're so far removed from whatever they they once were. Um, you know, we also use other sorts of cells in the lab that were derived from cancers and biopsies and things like that. But um, there's no way to get around, you know, testing things in cells. Just like right now, there's no way to get around animal models in research. You know, I I didn't love having to euthanize animals after doing experiments on them, but you know, we don't have a substitute for that yet. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but I do think it's really important. And also just keeping in mind again, I think what you said about, well, there's, you know, it, that was still used with, you know, if you take Tums or Advil or anything. Uh -huh. And I think that that's the part that some people, which I understand why they don't understand it because they don't know, but they're just so focused in on just the COVID stuff. Like, how do you think medicine Work. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the thing is, is, you know, they, you can't win, right? They, they say there's not enough testing. And then when you produce some data from testing data, they're like, oh, well, you use fetal cells. So, you know, there's, there's no way, you know, there's no way you can win these conversations because they're just looking for the next argument. Mm -hmm. They don't, they don't really have an opposition to the thing they're claiming. They just, they're trying to find an excuse um, to justify why they don't want to get vaccinated. Right. And like one of the biggest things, like you just said, is that people are like, well, it hasn't been tested. Like COVID-19 just showed up and this this, you know, vaccination just popped up within a couple of months. How do we know it's safe? It hasn't been tested. Right. And, <laughs> and we, <laughs> we have, is. we have tested it. Um, like I said, this, this vaccine technology, the MRNA technology has been in the works for, for 30 years. And the actual platform for the COVID vaccines actually started in the early 2000s with um, SARS. So SARS mm -hmm. is a related virus. It's so COVID-19 is the name of the disease caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2, which is SARS coronavirus number two. Um, so SARS was caused by the SARS coronavirus number one. So they're related, but different. Um, but that uh, that emerged in 2002. And actually around that time, we were trying to develop a vaccine for for that, for SARS. Um, so we had all of the, these data. We had all these animal trial data. We had the in vitro data. And so when this virus emerged and we realized how similar it was to SARS, um, we were able to tweak that, that design, that vaccine design to adjust it for this new virus. And so in reality, we actually already had almost two decades of research for that. Um, and all we really had to do then was move into the animal studies and the clinical trials. And we did all of that. You know, we, we, we ran those studies concurrently, um, starting pretty much in March of 2020, as soon as, you know, the virus sequence was determined. Um, mRNA, like I said, is really fast to produce compared to having to grow up a lot of virus. We don't even need the actual virus to make an mRNA piece. And we were able to start testing it right away. And 
we did clinical trials. We have, you know, well, now we have almost two years worth of data from the first person getting vaccinated in a phase one trial. Um, so we have the long-term <laughs> data. We have the data. Um, and, and, you know, I understand people's concern with, you know, side effects appearing after the fact, but in reality, even the most rare adverse events that have ever occurred with any vaccine ever, they appear within a month or two. So, you know, at this point, we're two years out from the first person getting one of the phase one vaccines, you know, nothing has appeared. People are not, you know, I heard, I heard conspiracy theories that said all the vaccinated people are going to drop dead in two years. You know, we're not, mm -hmm. we're, we're not dropping dead. You know, it's not, we have the safety data. We have hundreds of years of vaccine data. We have intimate knowledge of physiology and the immune system. We know how our immune system responds to these sorts of things. Um, and we have all of the clinical trial data and the ongoing real world data that show that the vaccines are safe and they're effective. And yeah, they're a little bit less effective with Omicron because it is so heavily mutated, um, but it's still very effective, particularly at preventing severe illness and death, which is a primary goal of vaccination. So now that we're like, you, you kind of brought up like the mutated thing and mm -hmm. we've been hearing a lot about like the mutations and things like that. And, you know, every, everyone, you know, when you turn on the TV, they're like, well, if everyone got vaccinated, we wouldn't have these mutations. Yeah. So, you know, can you speak to that? Yeah. So mutations occur as a result of random error. So mistakes happen. That's true in our bodies. So cancer cells in humans emerge because of random errors when our cells reproduce. So a mutation occurs when our DNA is replicating and that leads to some sort of physical change in a cell. And in some cases that can progress to cancer. In the context of a virus, like the virus that causes COVID-19, those mutations can change the nature of the virus as well. So every time the virus reproduces, it has to replicate its genome. And when it does that, it uses some enzymes to do that, but they're not they're not foolproof, right? Nothing is 100%. I think we have to get away from you know, mm -hmm. hung up on, oh, the vaccines aren't 100%. Well, nothing is 100%. Seed right. aren't 100%. And the virus ability to replicate is not 100%. So errors are made. Um, this, this particular virus does have a little bit of what we call a proofreading mechanism where it can recognize and correct some of those errors, but it's not hundred percent. And so eventually if a mutation occurs, that leads to a change that's beneficial for the virus. It's not, it's not a logical, it's not a, it's not a conscious thing. It's just evolutionarily does it help the virus infect better? Does it help the virus spread better? Does it help the virus evade the immune response better? Those viruses that have those mutations are going to be selected for. It's it's evolution. It's it's Darwinism, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Survival of the fittest. And, and fitness in the context of a virus is how much can it reproduce and spread? And so the way that this happens, these mutations, is every time the virus is reproducing. And a virus is reproducing once it infects somebody. So it has to infect ourselves in order to reproduce. It cannot reproduce outside of a cell. 
And so every person it infects is another vessel for mutations to potentially occur. So the more unvaccinated people there are, the more susceptible hosts there are, therefore the more opportunities for the virus to mutate. Um, so that's why vaccinating everybody who's eligible is super important. And that's not just in the U.S., that's globally. You know, we know that there are countries around the world that do not have vaccine access. And, and as this is a global outbreak, we obviously have to tackle that too. But every person that, that is, you know, essentially a, a willing host for the virus is a new opportunity for that virus to mutate and, and potentially a new variant to emerge. Okay. And even though, even like when we get vaxxed, we mm-hmm. can still spread it though, right? But it makes it less Yeah. So, yeah. So, so with the earlier variants with alpha and beta and delta, the vaccines were very effective at, at preventing illness, severe illness and death, but also at preventing infection outright. So if you can't get infected, you can't be a host. Therefore, the virus is not going to actually replicate in your body. And of course, then you won't be able to spread it to someone else right? Yeah. With Omicron, we are seeing some more of what we call breakthrough infections, which are people that are fully vaccinated that are getting infected. Um, so those people that are infected, they're generally very mild or asymptomatic if they get sick. So we're still preventing the severe illness, the hospitalization and the death. Um, but we're still, especially with a booster, we're still seeing that the, the, especially with a booster, we're preventing 75% of infections. So still we're, we're, we're shrinking the pool of people, um, that are hosts potentially for Mm -hmm. the virus. Now, even if you're one of the 25% that are vaccinated and boosted that, that get a breakthrough infection, um, we have data that show that those people will have lower levels of virus, meaning the virus is not reproducing as quickly or as effectively as it would in an unvaccinated person. And your immune system actually clears the infection much faster. So not only do you have less virus in your own body, therefore less chance for mutation, but you're also less likely to spread it and infect someone else. So, you know, again, it's not 100%. But being vaccinated is certainly an advantage um, for the person, for the population, than being unvaccinated, which is an advantage for the virus. Okay, yeah. I I just feel like that was like a big question. Oh, for sure. Because people are like, I don't get it. Like, yeah. And again, you know, I think I think people imagine vaccines as this magical force field. And as I said earlier, vaccines are a training tool for our immune system. But if you're swimming in virus, you know there it's not a magical force field it's it's a tool and so if you're around enough virus and that's the case with omicron it is just so infectious it reproduces so quickly so infected people are just just spewing out so much virus all the time and if you're not wearing your masks and and you're you know engaging in riskier behaviors because you think well, well I'm vaccinated therefore you know I'm I'm fine. Um, eventually, something is going to mm-hmm. get through, right? You know, I like to envision it more as like an umbrella. So, in a light or moderate rain, it's going to pretty much protect you completely. But in torrential rain or torrential rain with winds, you know, an umbrella can only do so much. And that's kind of how a vaccine works. Eventually, you know, if you're subjected to enough virus, your immune system is not going to be able to fend it all off at once. 
Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I even remember there were time is so funny now. I'm always like, it was like a few years ago, but it was probably like four now. There was, there was a year where the flu was so bad. Everyone was getting it. They were getting it for like seven to 10 days. It was such a hot mess. And I, I, you know, I get the flu shot every year. I run a school. I work with little kids. It's, it's a hot mess. They're germ monkeys. I love them, but seriously. No, they're incubators. They really are. And they're just not machines. And, um, so everybody I knew had the flu. It was horrible. They had it for seven, 10 days. Some people like they hadn't gotten vaccinated yet. And I had, and I got it. And I had it really badly for three days. I'm not saying on the fourth day I was sunshine, but my fever was gone. No aches, no pains. But you know, whenever you're sick, the boogies hang out, but it definitely made a difference. Like there was a definite difference in how long I was absolutely down for the count. And I think that that's the big thing to understand too, with COVID too, like, like, Yes, you might get sick, but you're not going to end up in the hospital. You're not going to die. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, for most people, so we did, we did a post about this on the podcast page a few days ago, you know, the first kind of line of defense are these antibodies, these neutralizing antibodies that basically bind to the virus as soon as it gets into your body and it neutralizes it right away before they can infect any cells. But you know, if you are exposed to enough virus, you might not have enough antibodies to neutralize all of it. And so Mm -hmm. if you do get infected, then you have your memory T cells that kick in and they will basically kill off any virus that gets into you. So you haven't fully stopped infection, but you've limited the illness by having that additional component of your immune system after vaccination. And so it's much more complex than I think, you know, we hear about in the news. And so you're absolutely right. You know, you might not prevent every single case of COVID, but you're going to reduce the the burden on the healthcare system. You're mm-hmm. going to reduce the overall severity of the population. You're going to reduce the total number of deaths. I mean, we're already seeing that. Um, you know, if you look at uh, parsed data from different areas and you look at death rates and hospitalization rates between vaccinated and unvaccinated, I mean, the data are just so clear there. Yeah. So I do want to touch on this because it has popped up on on Facebook, which is the most reliable place for news. No, please don't. Um, But people are like, you know, we'll post this person died from the vaccine and they were young, they were healthy. This happened to them. Um, I mean, I obviously anything can happen from anything but these seem to be like really big posts that are trying to scare people so they don't get vaxxed yeah i mean there could be a chance but what are what like what would you say to someone who's like well yeah i saw this post that said this girl who was super healthy and in her 20s died yeah i mean it's it's hard because those are always geared at the appeal to emotion right they're trying to elicit um you know, mm-hmm. fear and sadness and and those sorts of things from people. Um, the first thing is, you know, all of that, you know, you have no idea who's posting that. You haven't verified anything. Um, does this person exist? Did they actually die? I mean, we saw rumors of some nurse in, I think, Kentucky or Tennessee who was supposedly, you know, she died after getting vaccinated. It turns out she was alive and well and still working at the <laughs> hospital. Um, you know, so I think you, you have to take anything you see on social media with a grain of salt to begin with, but especially these types of posts that are trying to be very sensational. 
Um, we have clinical data from the trials that demonstrate that these vaccines are safe. There are not people dropping dead from vaccination. There are not sports players all around Europe that are dropping dead at soccer games from side effects of the vaccine. I saw that one too. Um, you know, using the VAERS database, so the V-A-E-R-S, which is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, um, as a data source is not appropriate because that is... So that's the CDC um, repository where it basically catalogs vaccine-related adverse events. But anybody can post anything on that. It is completely mm. voluntary. There's no verification step. Um, you can claim anything. You know, some guy wanted to test it out and he reported that he turned into the Incredible Hulk after vaccination um, <laughs> just to kind of show how easy it is to pretty much say anything. So a lot of people use... VAERS data inappropriately, they pull and they're like, oh, well, there's been 5,000 deaths. And again, there's no evidence to that. Um, anything that's reported as a severe adverse event on VAERS is investigated. And there's no data that suggests that vaccines are, are causing people to die. Now, that's not to say that people haven't died in the vicinity of getting a vaccination, but we have to remember that People die, unfortunately, of things all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether you're young and healthy or not, um, things happen. Accidents happen, you know, rare heart attacks happen, all sorts of things happen. And so we also have to remember that correlation doesn't equal causation. So just because two things happen in a similar timeline or, you know, under similar circumstances does not necessarily mean they're related to each other until you've done a further investigation. Um, so a lot of those, those, you know, appeals to emotion are again, doing exactly what you're trying, what you're saying, they're trying to get people scared. But in reality, I think, you know, we need to be much more, um, you know, vigilant about the virus. The virus is killing people. We have those data. <laughs> um, you know, the vaccines are not killing people. Yeah, I it's it's just so fascinating to me. But no, I think that what you said was really important because I didn't know that about the CDC site. And I bet a lot of people don't know that either. Um, so here's a question that, that actually I think a lot of people do have. So if you've had COVID, um, are you protected and don't need the vaccine? Ah, yes. We get that question a lot. So mm -hmm. the answer is you may have a little bit of protection from your natural immunity, but that's not enough. Um, so we know that certain people after having COVID itself don't develop any memory immunity to the virus. Some people develop very low levels that don't last very long. And some people might develop slightly more robust immune responses and maybe they're a little bit more protected. But what we're seeing now is particularly in the presence of Omicron, if you've been infected with a previous variant, it offers almost no protection against Omicron. So Omicron increases your risk of reinfection three times higher than at, you know, in the presence of previous variants, if you had COVID, but didn't subsequently get vaccinated. So even if you've had COVID, you still want to get vaccinated. What that's going to do is it's going to give you what we're calling hybrid immunity, meaning you're amplifying your immune response with a combination of previous illness, but also vaccination. And that is offering 
pretty good protection against future reinfection or illness. Now, that's not to say that it's 100% because, again, nothing is. Um, but you don't want to just simply rely on natural immunity, particularly in the presence of these more mutated variants. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> I just know that comes up a lot. It does. It does. And, you know, you know, sometimes natural immunity is life lasting and very robust in certain viruses. That is the case, but it is not the case with this virus. No. So uh, my next few questions are, have, have come from some of my people because I, so I work with two to five-year-olds and my five-year-olds are like on course. They've gotten at least their first shot. Um, But the big question is, What's up for the two to four? Little ones, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, know. I don't know when the baby babies are getting it, but this chick wants her two to four. I know, I know. Um, okay, so the clinical trials are still progressing. We haven't given up. We haven't ignored them. I know it's very frustrating for for everyone with younger kids. I know Jess, my my co-host, um, one of her kids is five, but her other one is younger, and so again, partial vaccination in the household and. Um, So basically what they did was when they conduct pediatric clinical trials, they had, they actually start kind of from phase one again. So they're testing a few different dosages Mm -hmm. and from there, they actually then select the optimal dose for kids. And so it takes a little bit longer to kind of get to the end. Whereas with the teenagers, they simply added them into the adult trial. And so we were able to get vaccines out to them faster. And so what they found with the pediatric trials is that, the dosage they were testing was very, very safe. It had very good safety profile, very low side effect profile, but it was not um, leading to as robust an immune response as what they were expecting or, or what their benchmark is. So when they're doing this type of trial, they're, they're comparing it to a benchmark population, which is, which is happens to be the, the, um, the 16 to 25 year old age group. So in the adult trial, and they do what's called a bridge. So they're looking at the level of antibody production, the level of these specific T cells that are being produced. And so they're bridging the data from the adult trial to the kids trial. And because the dosage they selected for the young kids is much smaller, they didn't see uh, a correlate in the immunogenicity, which is the the robustness of the immune response. Mm -hmm. And so what that suggests is, yes, it's, it's a very safe vaccine, but it's not, it's not eliciting the, the level of immune response that they needed to kind of pass the, the bar, right? They have to, you know, exceed that or, you know, not. So what they're doing now is they're, instead of a two dose regimen, especially now with Omicron, they're testing a three dose regimen. So now they need a little bit more time to administer that third dose and then monitor for that immune response. And so what that means is it's been delayed. So they're now projecting to have the data available by March. Um, And so that means that we could have vaccines available for at least the two to four-year-olds by April, um, if if that study, if that arm of the study looks good. Um, and then the six months to two-year-olds would be behind them. And, you know, it's also important to remember that um, typically with pediatric trials, it's a little bit harder to enroll enough participants because, of course, parents, mm-hmm. you know, they're cautious with their kids. You know, 
generally people are a little bit more cavalier with their own selves, their own bodies, and they'll enroll themselves in a trial before they might enroll their child. Um, so it takes a little bit longer to enroll enough participants in a pediatric trial than it does for an adult trial. So all of those things, um, you know, collectively have delayed the the completion of the trial. But we haven't forgotten about them. Um, <laughs> no, it is important to protect them. We know especially the really young kids can't wear masks and things like that, um, you know, and, and we do want to make sure that they're protected too, which is why if you are eligible um, and you're especially if you're around little kids, you want to get vaccinated so you can also help protect them when they can't be vaccinated yet. Yeah, um, I will say ours are pretty good with the masks. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. They really are. There, we, we, the first thing when we first, when, when the world opened up and we all came back, it was funny because, you know, we all came back and we had our masks on and they were like, we do not like this. And we were honest with them. We were like, we don't really like it either. I mean, now we're used to it, but we yeah. were like, we don't like it either. And we're going to, we're just all going to work together to get used to it. And they were like, oh, okay. And then that was that. Are they perfect? Sometimes we have to tell them to pull it up. Sure. But our guys are there. They really jumped on the bandwagon. That's awesome. I've heard a couple of tricks. Um, I have one friend who lets her kid like color coordinate their masks. So like uh -huh. with their outfits, which I think helps with, uh, you know, the enthusiasm for wearing them. But I love I mean, I think I think we do have to be honest with little kids like you know, I were, I wore masks in the lab before it was cool to wear a mask. Um, <laughs> but my partner, he didn't have to do that. And he personally hates wearing masks, but he's very cautious about COVID and he pretty much won't go anywhere with masks. So he'll be complaining the whole time, but he'll be doing it. <laughs> and I think, I think we have to be real with kids and be like, yeah, you know, a lot of us don't like wearing it either, but we're doing it to keep everybody safe. And, and, and I think that, you know, I think kids appreciate that kind of honesty. And if they're understanding like why we're doing what we're doing, they're going to be a lot more likely to, to do it too. They really are. And they actually are like better about it than a lot of grownups. And they really <laughs> understand a it. Bad. A lot of, they really, they're like, my guys really do. They're like, well, we need to wear them to keep everybody safe. <laughs> and then when we're done, this is what we can do. But like, this is what we have to do. And we, you know, we have ones that have dinosaurs on them and all this stuff. And it, the, the kids are doing great. Um, but thank you for, I'm excited. I hope it's spring. Yeah, no, um, we'll, be, we'll be keeping everybody updated. So sweet. we know we know there's a lot of anxiety for parents for sure. Um, but also people are saying that, you know, COVID is not as bad for kids. So it's not as big a deal. I mean, yes and no. You know, if you look at population level, you know, the people that are most susceptible to severe illness and death are elderly people, immunocompromised people and right now are unvaccinated adults. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's no risk to kids. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that there are children that have died from COVID. Um, you know, yes, the numbers are lower than adult populations, but we shouldn't be willing to sacrifice any children. You know, I mean, that's, that's a terrible loss. Not to say that an elderly person is, is, you know, a better loss, but I mean, we're supposed to be doing everything we can to protect children, you know? Mm -hmm. And and on top of that, you know, we know that there is what, what we're shorthanding long COVID, which is the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, which is basically these persistent symptoms that last even after mild illness. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that um, in kids, even that had asymptomatic illness. So 
basically they were in a hospital for an unrelated procedure and um, they did a COVID test as part of the kind of intake policy and they tested positive. They found that even kids that had no symptoms had markers of of um, cardiovascular inflammation, of other sorts of markers of inflammation. And so to me, you know, we have this novel virus. We don't fully understand the pathology of the illness it causes or the damage that it causes kind of under the hood. And particularly with children who are growing and developing so rapidly, we have no idea how that's going to translate as they go through puberty, as they get older. And so why are we you know, throwing them to the wolves, so to speak, you know, when we don't have that information, you know, in, in my eyes, we should be doing everything we can to prevent them, even if they present with mild illness initially, just like the chicken pox, right? You can mm -hmm. have mild chicken pox and you can get shingles 50 years down the road and you can die from shingles, you know? So for me, it's, it's an easy decision. You know, we want to protect our children because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, even if they get infected. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just so everyone knows, um, so my kids wear masks. It has not stopped them from running, climbing, screaming, being crazy. <laughs> not one of them has come up to me being like, I can't breathe. Yeah. Not one. It has not slowed them down. You can trust me. And I, I love my babies, but they're still crazy pants in yeah. the best way. It has not slowed them down. Yeah. So masks are fine. Yes. One of my parents um, at school was wondering about the transmission risk outdoors with the unvaccinated mm, kids mm -hmm. with like, I guess also with Omicron now. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. You know, a lot of kind of the early mutterings were like, Oh, well I'm being deprived of oxygen. And, and I think yeah. there's a big, there's a big difference between being uncomfortable and actually having a physiological response. And yes, there are no data that suggests that you're being deprived of oxygen while wearing a mask. We, you know, physicians and scientists wear masks for, all the time, forever and ever. And it's not a thing. So yeah. um, we'll put that to bed. But yeah, outdoors, it's, you know, we don't have a ton of data for Omicron specifically yet, but the general risk of outdoors transmission is pretty low. There have been no outbreaks to date that were linked solely to an outdoor activity. Um, a lot of the outbreaks that we've seen that were affiliated with an outdoor activity were actually started with like an indoor gathering around mm. the same time. So like the Sturgis motorcycle rally. Yeah, there was a, there was a motorcycle rally, but the outbreak actually occurred with all the people doing indoor dining in the town in Sturgis. Yeah. It wasn't the actual outdoor rally. Um, so if, you know, you're talking about playground activities and things like that, you know, you don't want to have kids like in each other's faces and licking each other's faces and talking <laughs> each other's faces, but you know, generally the risk outside is pretty low. Um, you know, playgrounds are pretty safe. Um, I would say the biggest thing is, you know, if they're all touching common equipment, good hand hygiene is always good practice. So, you know, have them wash their hands after they go outside, um, before they go outside, you know, anytime they're kind of touching common, common spaces, because, you know, humans don't realize it, but we were always poking at our faces and kids yeah. are doing that even more. So, you know, if there's a chance that they picked up virus from one of the unvaccinated kids, that'll help reduce the risk. But I generally haven't seen any convincing data that, um, you would need to mask while you're playing outside. 
Okay, cool. Um, yeah. And I agree. Like, know your kids. Like, my kids do like to, like, squish the lemon and roll <laughs> all over each other. And also, we're a preschool, so we have to wear masks anyway. Yeah. But my children are very close to each other all the time. So masks are very good for them. Yes. <laughs> but if you are taking your kids who don't actually, like, probably, you know, they don't have a million friends at the playground, you're going to be fine. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but it is very funny. Um, so I wanted to ask a few things about the CDC, if that's cool. Yeah, sure. I think, I think they, I, and this is just from chatting, they may not be doing the best PR. So they're confusing a lot of people. And I think it's screwing up the science, maybe oh, not the science I, that's happening. Yeah. But like, what the hell? So, they, they have a, they have a, a PR problem for yes. sure. Yeah. So between changing the quarantine from 10 days to five days, very confusing. And then the other thing that really jumps out to all of us is that, say, f- restaurants, for example, um, you, you, you can sit at your table without a mask, but then as soon as you get up to go pee, you have to put one on, but we're all still inside anyway. So yeah. how is that working? Yeah. So I think those are the two big things that kind of were glaring that people had questions about. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say, I don't know all the inner workings at the CDC. You know, there's obviously a lot of pressure. I don't envy them at all. Um, Once upon a time, I wanted to be a scientist at the CDC. And I have to say, um, I feel like that would be a lot of pressure. But, um, you know, at least at least the public face of the CDC. But but um, yeah, so let's talk about the restaurant thing first. So generally speaking, I don't think people should be dining indoors um, Mm -hmm. because this is a virus that can hang out in the air and hang out, you know, and linger and spread beyond just your immediate table. And, you know, unless the restaurant is requiring vaccinations for every single person, which, you know, I think Philadelphia is. Yeah. um, But but um you know, still, we know there are breakthrough infections. I mean, nothing's 100%. Um, You know, it's anything that you're doing indoors is inherently more risky than outdoors. And anything you're doing indoors without a mask, which is eating, Mm -hmm. um, is much more risky. So personally, I'm not dining indoors. I Mm -hmm. dined indoors one time when case numbers were extremely low. Yeah. And the restaurant had almost no people in it. And even then I felt uncomfortable. But (laughs) We've been doing a lot of takeout to support the local restaurants. We've been dining outdoors, um, especially now that it's cold in the area. Um, you know, we found a, a few places in Philly that have the outdoor heaters, which yeah. are delightful. Um, so I will do that. But but personally, yes, I mean, I understand that they're trying to balance like the risk and the economics of things. But if you can support a restaurant by ordering takeout or supporting them other ways, um, especially with Omicron, there's it's just not worth the risk to dine indoors right now. It's just, you know, virus is just so rampant. And um, that is perfect perfect spreading environment for, for an airborne virus. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little bit of mixed messaging for sure. I agree. Um, I was always a little bit flustered and frustrated by that, especially because, you know, in some places around the country, they were closing like the local state parks, but they were letting restaurants stay open. 
you know, we know outdoors is actually the safest place to be. And so we, we should want to kind of promote that and, you know, discourage indoor activities that are riskier. Um, but of course, you know, we still have an economy and, and again, there's a lot of factors to juggle, but I think, you know, if you are thinking about indoor dining, you definitely have to consider the fact that they're probably, especially now are going to be infected people there. So you have to weigh your own personal risk threshold, consider who you're around, you know, on a regular basis, if they're high risk, you know, even if you're not high risk, um, all those sort of factors should play into your decision. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so interesting though. Cause it is like, what? Everything's changing. And then how about yeah. the idea of the, the quarantining yeah. 10 days to five days? So again, I think it's, it's a little bit, you know, there are, there is science that, that does demonstrate that uh, the virus is, is most transmissible or you're most contagious in the early stages of infection. So that's, typically two days before you show symptoms, which is obviously the riskiest because you don't, you feel right. perfectly fine. And then like the first three to five days after you're symptomatic. And so there, there is signs behind kind of the shortening of the isolation period after um, illness. And, and again, this is specifically for asymptomatic people. So, you know, if you're symptomatic and you're very sick, you're still going to be isolating for that 10 days. Um, Yes, there are going to be people who could still technically be contagious at the end of the five days, which is why we actually came up with our own recommendations, mm -hmm. kind of contrasting with the CDC. <laughs> so we try to find this kind of happy balance where we probably would lengthen that isolation to seven days because that'll catch more of those kind of outliers. Um, and we also feel that there should be a, a rapid antigen test at the end of that, that you should get two negative rapid antigen tests because we know the rapid tests are good at detecting the most contagious people. Um, and so if you have two negative tests within a day of each other, that's probably a good indication that you're not contagious to other people anymore. Now, again, it's not a perfect solution, but I think right now there are so many people getting infected um, that there's just no way to contain it in a way that would avoid or would, you know, prevent the entire world from shutting down. And so again, mm -hmm. I don't envy the CDC and making these yeah. at all. And I know that there are a lot of people that are really irate about this. Um, but again, they're trying to, I think, balance this public safety with this economic implication um, I, I don't think there's a per perfect solution. What I would have loved to have seen though, was, um, them providing, or, you know, the government, the federal government providing high quality masks and at home tests for everyone, because that could have reduced the burden, the illness burden. Um, because we know cloth masks are not as effective, mm -hmm. you know, if, but, but KN90 or yeah, KN95s or N95s or even KF94s, they're not a, they're not financially accessible to a lot of people, you know. Right. There no. are, there are a lot of people that can't afford these. You know, we just bought I just bought some rapid tests and you know, they're 10 bucks to 10 bucks to 20 bucks a pop. Yeah. And you know, I I have an income so I can afford that, but there are people that that's more than what they're making on an hourly basis, you know, and you can't expect people like that to be able to afford that. And so if you want to keep 
the public safe, you have to provide these resources. And I, and I think that that is a, a missing piece of what should have been done on a national level where we should have provided like other countries did should have provided these toolkits that include masks that included testing. Um, and there's even some countries that, you know, if someone tests positive, they get like a, like a care package for like supplies. So they don't have to go to the store. So they get like, um, you know, some, some grocery staples and non-perishables because, Again, you know, these these transmission events are occurring in public places. But if you're say you're a single parent and mm -hmm. you got infected and your kid is sick, but you you have to go to the store, you have to get food, you have to do this like it's unrealistic to expect people like that who don't have the resources to be able to isolate, you know, so yeah. I, you know, I mean, obviously this is a systemic, this is a much bigger issue than just COVID-19, but I think it's really illuminated a lot of these kind of systemic um, holes in, in our healthcare infrastructure. Yes. That's a whole other podcast. Oh, I have a lot oh, to say about one. that. But, but um, <laughs> no, and, and it's, and I wish that it was a wake up call, but I don't know. I don't see a lot of change that I I hoped would have been maybe like a silver lining to all of this. And and maybe that's in process and maybe it takes time, but um, yeah, it's frustrating for sure yeah. to see that, you know, we don't have, we don't have more empathy than I was, you know, I was hoping, I, I was hoping that there would be more, more collective empathy for people. I know it makes me very sad. <laughs> well, thanks for answering that. And so here's another thing that people are very like concerned about that the rapid tests don't pick up Omicron. Mm -hmm. So we, we don't have a ton of data on that yet. We actually, we did a post kind of cautioning people for, for using or administering those tests off label. Cause I know that there's been a lot of, a lot of articles saying, just go start swabbing your throat. And again, mm. these tests have been validated to be used very specifically. And if you collect a, in a incorrect sample, you can affect the results. You can't necessarily trust those results. Um, so the FDA has stated that there may be some sensitivity issues. Um, they don't have a lot of quantitative data yet, um, but all of the different test manufacturers have different degrees of, of um, sensitivity. And so right now um, they're all in process of verifying and validating, but it's important to remember that the majority of the mutations um, the Omicron variant are in that spike protein, mm -hmm. um, which is why we're obviously concerned about the vaccine. But the rapid antigen tests are actually looking for a different protein. It's called the nucleocapsid protein. And this is not nearly as mutated as the spike protein is on Omicron. So it's very likely that these tests will still be quite effective at picking up Omicron. Um, but the challenge is the timing of these tests is very critical because there's this, this short window that you have enough virus to be detected by these tests. They're not nearly as sensitive as the PCR tests. Mm -hmm. So if you test too early or you test too late, you may be missing, um, you know, a positive result. So you might get a false negative because you weren't in that optimal window. And because there are so many people getting infected and so many more people are testing nowadays, we're seeing more anecdotal reports of, oh, I tested, I had symptoms and it was negative. So, you know, I think it's just simply a matter of the magnitude of everything is being kind of exacerbated. There's more people getting tested. There are more cases in general. Um, but right now we, we, 
right now, the, the, all the data points to we can still detect Omicron, but again, you have to be really um, aware of the limitations of the tests themselves in terms of the timing of them. And you want to make sure a lot of times you get false results is not because of the test itself, but because the procedure is not followed perfectly. Mm-hmm. And each one of these test brands have very different, well, not very different, but slightly different procedures. So you want to make sure that you read the instructions very thoroughly and you complete the procedure exactly as described. So if it says you're swabbing your nostril for 15 seconds, you want to time it and make sure you do the full 15 seconds. So a lot of the kind of false results can also be linked to operator error. So we want to be sure to, to con, you know, make sure that you're following those steps very precisely. Also, um, if you've had COVID and say it's been, you know, 10 days, whatever many days, you can, even if you're over it, you can still test positive for it. So you typically, if you're going to test positive after you've recovered from COVID and it's been 10 or more days, you would most likely or potentially still test positive on a PCR test because that's for viral RNA remnants. So even if the virus is like degraded and deteriorated, you could still detect some, some RNA, but you most likely will not test positive on a rapid antigen test. Um, because the sensitivity of that, you need so much more viral protein there to be detected. Um, whereas the PCR, it's much more sensitive because it actually amplifies the sample. So Mm -hmm. even if you have only a tiny bit of viral RNA present, it can still come up positive. So that's typically why when we say testing out of isolation, we're not saying a PCR test because you can still test positive beyond the point of contagious, but a rapid antigen test would be a good gauge because you need quite a bit of viral protein in order to actually test positive on that. Okay. So if you, if it's been 10 or whatever days and you get a PCR test and you don't feel crappy and you feel fine, if it does pick stuff up, are you still contagious or it's so low? that It's it's probably low. Um, You know, if you have really severely symptomatic illness, like to the point of hospitalization, they do, extend that isolation to 20 days, but Mm -hmm. that's really kind of the upper limit. So if you had really pretty mild illness and you feel asymptomatic at the end of that 10 days, it's pretty unlikely that you would be contagious to someone else. Okay, cool. Cause that's a big question that happens for us too, is like, how do we make this work? What, you know, can we get them tested? So that was all on the table too. Um, So I had questions about medicine that we have seen on the interwebs so we have heard about hydro hydrochloroquine hydroxychloroquine i said it it happened that's a lot of word and ivermectin yeah um i did have questions about ivermectin because i know that or i've heard that like that's the horse one right (laughs) but it is used for humans too there are just because i think sometimes we're like the cdc the media gets tripped up because that now they're just saying everybody's using i mean i'm sure some people have used the horse medication ivermectin for themselves there is a human version of ivermectin yes now what does that do what's what's that used for so ivermectin is an anti-parasitic which Mm -hmm. basically means it is used to treat 
parasites, which are not viruses. So they're also potential pathogens of human, but they're different. They're, they're different organisms. Mm -hmm. And ivermectin is typically used for worms. Um, Mm -hmm. So different types of worms, there's a worm called that causes a disease called river blindness in, in developing nations that it is treated, that is used to treat. Um, It is not for viruses. It never has been used for viruses. Um, the studies that were testing it for viruses, unfortunately, did not find any efficacy for viruses. Um, there was one study that looked at at looked at inhibiting the virus in vitro, remember in in cells and culture in the lab. Mm-hmm. And that was the study that a lot of people grabbed onto. They were like, oh, look, it inhibits the replication of the virus. And if you actually look at that data, first of all, you can't translate what you do in cells in a Petri dish to what happens in a human body, but they used a dosage that was 35 times higher than the the dosage that's FDA approved for treatments of those parasitic infections in humans. So it's not a physiologically appropriate dose that could be very potentially harmful. We actually saw that people started overdosing on ivermectin. There were a lot of calls into poison controls and things like that. Um, you know, and anything you take at a high enough dose is going to kill something. That's right. why we have this, the dose makes the poison phrase. Um, there's been a bunch of clinical trials that have tried to demonstrate that there is a benefit. And, and unfortunately, there's no benefit to using ivermectin. And um you know, yes, it is used for, for rare instances of like lice or scabies infestations when other more typical treatments are not effective. Um, but that's not a first line of defense. Um, so yes, these parasitic infections or these arthropod infections, um, you know, it can be used in humans for that's what it's approved for, but Mm -hmm. it's not effective for viral infections. And, also, the formulation for animals is not the same as humans, so please don't use the animal formulation either. Yeah. Um, how about also, like, zinc, vitamin D, and also the hydroxychloroquine? Because yes. these are things that people are like, what if I do these things? Yes. So, unfortunately, you know, zinc and vitamin D and vitamin C and elderberry, there are no data to suggest that that they're effective either. Um, we actually did a podcast episode about supplements and whether they help, you know, with the immune response and things like that. And, and, you know, it would be great if, if they were effective, but, um, unfortunately they're, they're not, there are no data that suggests that they help, um, prevent illness or infection themselves, that they, um, reduce the severity of illness or they shorten their duration of illness, Um, and, and a lot of people have unfortunately overdosed on some of these supplements, Mm. which sounds like it's not a big deal, but it can lead to a variety of different, um, issues, gastrointestinal symptoms, um, things like overdose of vitamin C can lead to kidney stones and things like that. So, um, you know, aside from the fact that vitamins and supplements are not regulated for safety or efficacy, there's just, there's no data to support it. Um, unfortunately, so Um, And the same is true for hydroxychloroquine. So hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are also antiparasitics. They're used for the treatment of malaria. And again, not a virus, Um, Mm -hmm. but there was a theory. So the, the, the mode of action that they thought could be the mechanism that could work for this virus um, 
was related to how the virus infects our cells. And unfortunately, this virus did not infect cells in that that particular method. And so the kind of logic behind how hydroxychloroquine could work was kind of debunked. And then, of course, clinical trials were conducted and it showed that there was no benefit to hydroxychloroquine um, or chloroquine, which is an, another kind of analogous version of that mm-hmm. medication. Um, you know, again, during the initial kind of COVID storm, um, we were trying to do what we call these um, drug repurposing studies. So basically, you know, taking existing medications, all sorts of different medications, you know, cough syrup and antipsychotics and other other treatments for other sorts of pathogens and seeing if anything worked, you know, kind of like, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And unfortunately, um, you know, none of these none of these were effective. Um, a meta-analysis of hydroxychloroquine clinical trials found that there were, was no benefit to prevent illness, no reduction of illness severity, no reduction or prevention of hospitalization or death. And this included people taking hydroxychloroquine prophylactically, so in advance of being infected, but also in patients that were sick with COVID-19. Um, and there are potential side effects for hydroxychloroquine, particularly at high doses, which um, can lead to cardiac problems and kidney injuries and liver liver failure as well. So, you know, yes, these these medications are FDA approved. I mean, the supplements aren't, but hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin are, but they're not FDA approved for, for COVID and taking them off label, particularly at high doses, it's not as it's not just, oh, well, it, it exists, therefore it's safe. It's not necessarily true. There's always these caveats when it comes to medications. Yeah. Um, but you know, <clears throat> there are some people out there. Yeah. And I know you did a podcast about it. <laughs> we the, did. the very, the very trustworthy Dr. Joe Rogan. Oh, I know. <laughs> so listen to that podcast from oh <laughs> because no. Um, <laughs> so another question people have is, well, how can we trust these big pharma companies anyway? They've done a lot of shady stuff. I mean, aren't the boosters all about money? And like while that may seem a little over the top, like some of the big pharma companies have done a little shady stuff. So how how can we um, get people to trust the the boosters or the medication when big pharma sometimes screws up? Yeah, I mean, you know, big corporations, they're doing a lot of things at once, right? But I think it's important to remember that the people that are doing the science are not the big pharma company. They're not the CEO. They're not the president. They're not the figurehead. They're regular people who devoted their life to science and they happen to work at a pharmaceutical company. Um, A lot of early discoveries that end up going to a pharmaceutical company start in academic research and they license them to a pharmaceutical company because they have the resources to scale up the research and the manufacturing and things like that, things that you can't do at a university. Um, You know, I would say no company is probably, you know, clean, you know, polished clean. Mm -hmm. Probably everybody has some sort of, you know, underhanded thing that they've done over the course of history. Um, I don't think that pharmaceutical companies or healthcare institutions are, are um, immune to that either. But I think we have to separate the company from the individuals that are doing the science. 
Um, because these are people, these are just people, you know, Mm -hmm. I work with these people all the time and, you know, these are just individuals who want to answer the unanswered questions and make the world a better place. Um, and I think it's important to remember that these people that are pushing all these alternative therapies, remedies, et cetera, they're making tons of money. Um, you know, like Joe Rogan, who's hosting controversial people that are claiming to be whistleblowers. He has a hundred million dollar contract with Spotify to be controversial and to get people to listen to him. And, you know, people like Merkola, who used to tell people to give their children bleach enemas to cure their autism, he makes millions of dollars a year. Um, and so, you know, when people are always like, well, follow the money, you know, all these people that are pushing supplements are making tons of money, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not like they're altruistic and, you know, these clinical trials are not, Um, you know, I think that's, that's really important to, to remember. Um, but if you wanted to kind of talk about profits on a pharmaceutical company level, if you actually look at what's profitable for a pharmaceutical company, it is not vaccines because what vaccines do is they prevent future illness. Mm -hmm. What pharmaceutical companies make a ton of money on are things for chronic illness or things like, Viagra that people take forever. So things that treat things like high blood pressure, cardiovascular issues, those are the big money makers for pharmaceutical companies. In reality, vaccine research and development costs more money than the vaccine profits bring in. It's it's not a very profitable market. Um, but we need vaccines. And so you know, certain pharmaceutical companies invest a portion of their portfolio into focusing and developing vaccines. Um, and, and you know, the government is is investing money in getting these vaccines to people. But I think we all need to remember that to us, there's no cost of these, you know. But if you get sick with COVID and you go to the hospital, you're paying for all that treatment. And if your insurance doesn't cover that or you don't have insurance, that's thousands and thousands of dollars. So I think we have to have this kind of big picture approach when we talk about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So I only have a few more questions because I know we've been here forever. (laughs) I promise I'm not going to keep you forever. Um, One of the questions that I was asked was, can someone who recently had COVID and recovered spread it again if they come in contact with someone else who has it? Mm. Um, It's really hard to say. So some of that would depend on how recently they had recovered and if they were able to be reinfected by the by the other person that was infected. You know, if it's if if it's, you know, within a span of, you know, days or weeks, it's it's probably pretty unlikely. Um, We know even if you know, you're unvaccinated, but you've recovered from COVID, aside from the small proportion of people that that don't develop any immunity, people typically develop a little of protection for at least a couple of months. Um, But, you know, I never want to say never, you know, so I think it's still important that, you know, even if you just recently recovered, you still want to be cautious around other people. Yes. Awesome. So, okay. So I have two more questions. (laughs) That's it. They're super quick. (laughs) So my people wanted to know the best mask for preschoolers. (laughs) Ah, well, you know, there actually are some KN95 Mm -hmm. that are, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So there actually are some KN95s that are designed for small faces and for kids. Um, There is a brand. Let me see if I can track it down really quickly right off the top of my head. 
Um, but there's a brand called Happy Masks that make kids, they, they are cloth, but they're multiple layers are like five layers thick. Those are pretty good for kids. Um, but there's actually a brand called Powcom that make a kid size KN95. Um, which is really, those are going to be kind of your best protection. Um, and then there's also, um, one other brand, let me think of it. It's going to come to me in a second. Um, but what I can do actually, Brandy, if it's helpful, I can uh -huh. even send you the link. Yeah. Um, and I can put it in the little blurb too. Awesome. Yeah. So the Powcom there, it's called the children's respirator. This one is great. This is actually the brand that I use the adult size masks for, um, it might be a little bit big for your preschoolers, but it's going to depend a little bit on the size of their face. So you can check that out. Yeah. Um, there's also one called the Evolve Together brand. Um, they have KN95s. And then there's one called Vita. That's the brand that's been very popular for little kids. Um, and so these ones, they're KN95s. They're very uh, comfortable from all the parents that have told me this. Um, and these are all, all pretty affordable and they offer cool. really, really good protection. Cool. Yeah. Actually we have very large children, <laughs> but I will send you the link and then awesome. you can drop it in and, and all the parents can find it. Cause I know that it's been a challenge. You know, we got inundated with, you know, I, I have masks for myself, but I can't find any that fit my kid's face. And so we know yeah. that it's a challenge. So my last two questions before I ask you if we missed anything is, are are how many boosters are we gonna need like is there a point where we're like okay is enough already like are we gonna you know like because I think that's what people are feeling they're like yeah. two okay three wait there's gonna be another one like right. like ah so you know I wish I had an answer I don't have an answer mm -hmm. um you know I think it's okay to admit what we don't oh, absolutely. know but <laughs> I'm a big I think, fan I of think that when people are too confident you know that's that's a red flag but um, you know, it's possible. So right now, the reason that boosters are really important is because this virus is still circulating wildly, right? The reason we don't have to get boosters for other infections and illnesses right now, like measles or things like that, is because we only have pockets of outbreaks of those. And in those instances, a lot of people are recommended to get a booster. Um, so once we get to a point where we slow down the spread of infection, you know, these kind of recurrent vaccinations is going to be le much less critical. That being said, I would not be surprised if there's a variant specific booster that is recommended for us to just kind of help quell things. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see it as being like we're getting a booster every six months sort of thing. Eventually, it's going to be a situation where we're going to have enough protection from the previous vaccines that we're going to be able to kind of mitigate illness. The hospitals will no longer be overwhelmed. So they'll be able to manage cases that do come in. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into a situation where the death rate is going to decline and we're going to be able to kind of coexist mm -hmm. um, where, you know, annually you're probably going to have a certain amount of mortality associated with it, but it's not going to be, we're still in the crisis phase, I think is the, yeah. thing. Um, so once we get out of the crisis phase, you know, then it's going to be much less emergent and much, much less urgent. Um, but I do think it's important to remember that, you know, aside from very few examples, most of our routine vaccinations are multi-dose three, four, some of them are even five doses. So um, it's not unusual to have a vaccine where you, you do need 
multiple doses. Yeah, I think we just forget because we were little. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah like, exactly. So the big, huge question is, when is it over? Like, what's our uh, end goal? Like, because that's the thing I think everyone wants to know. Like, at what yeah. point are we like, well, this is life now. I know. And I think, you know, we're all, we're exhausted. We're, we have this pandemic fatigue. We're burnt out. We, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And and I think, I think we're, we're getting there, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's some evidence that suggests that the Omicron peak is, is close. And in other countries, it seemed to kind of crash out very quickly after it peaked, um, you know, likely because it spread so quickly, they're just weren't many more hosts to infect. Um, so, you know, I think the next next few weeks are going to be really telling in terms of the timeline for this. Um, but I, I would say by the time we get the younger kids a vaccine, we're going to start seeing, you know, more semblance of normalcy. We're going to have better vaccine coverage as a population. Right now, the U.S. Uh, on the whole there's only 67% of the population that's fully vaccinated and only 40% have been boosted. So we're not where we should be compared to other countries. Um, you know, so I think a lot of folks who are vaccinated are like, what are you talking about? Everybody's vaccinated. And in reality, that's not the case. Right. Um, you know, so I, you know, I think, you know, we need to, we need to get more people vaccinated. Um, we'll get the younger kids a vaccine. I think that's going to help a lot. Um, but I think, you know, within the next few months, we're going to figure out kind of ways to balance public safety and kind of normalcy. Um, it may be a situation where we continue to say mask on airplanes for a while, um, or we have to show vaccine proof for large public events and things like that. But I think, you know, after this Omicron peak, if, especially if we can improve vaccination coverage, we'll start to have this kind of you know, what we say endemic, meaning the, the virus kind of coexists with us. And um, right now we're, you know, we don't want people to go out and get infected intentionally aside from the obvious, you know, but the healthcare system's already overwhelmed and um, ICUs are at capacity. And so people are getting denied care even for non-COVID things. And so, you know, we have to get past this crisis phase first. Um, but I think once that happens, then we'll be in a much better position. Awesome. So is there any, I mean, I'm sure there's a billion things we missed, but is there anything that we missed that you're like, this is the thing that I really like need people to understand? I think, you know, I think my big takeaway is, you know, I understand a lot of people, you know, have this skepticism because they say, you know, oh, well, you lied to us about the vaccine and the efficacy and the this and the that. And I think we have to understand that science is a, is a, a fluid thing, right? Science is a process of answering questions and collecting new information and revising our interpretations of it. And so, you know, the general public is really watching science unfold in real time because we're all living through this pandemic. And, um, you know, we have to adjust things as we get new data, just like in the beginning, we're testing all these treatments and initially some look promising. And then it turns out that no, you know, these don't work. Um, you know, but we've got these two antivirals that are on the horizon and particularly the Paxlovid one from Pfizer looks super promising. I'm really excited about it. And by the springtime, we're going to have millions of doses of that available. So, you know, it's going to become manageable. So there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel right now. Your best tools are getting vaccinated. If you haven't yet getting boosted, if you haven't yet, 
wearing your masks, trying to be aware of risky situations and being cautious of those things. And, you know, it's a collective effort. You know, I, I know a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's my, my decision, but, but ultimately with a contagious disease, your decision affects other people. And I, you know, I think we all have to have a little empathy and keep that in mind. And, and, you know, we are truly in this together and we have to kind of combat it together. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the whole world. Yeah. Everybody's world. <laughs> like, it's everywhere. Nobody's like playing a joke on you. Right. Exactly. A, the entire world didn't get together to make a conspiracy. Exactly. But exactly. yeah, I agree. I think that we haven't seen science happen in real time. And I think that that's the biggest thing. And I feel like we could talk about this forever, but that would be crazy pants. <laughs> I thank you so much for this. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. You are amazing. <laughs> um, everybody listen to Unbiased Science Podcast and follow Dr. Andrea Love on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Seriously, this is so great. I wanted to do this so badly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brandy. I'm so glad we were able to, to finally make this happen. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone out there, stay healthy, stay safe, and I will talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, you know, let us know how you feel about this. Leave a little review or, you know, some stars or comment or reach out. Let us know what you think about this episode because we'd love to keep this discussion going. Okie dokie. Okie dokie. Stay safe out there and as always, be kind. All right, everyone. See you soon.